This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Part one was earlier today of Cal's experiences with Larry King, the legendary radio show host. And I didn't know Larry King interviewed over 60,000 people. There's a lot to learn from someone who did that. But Cal also learned so much personal stuff by spending 13 years having breakfast every day, going to his shows. Anyway, we'll let Cal describe. Some of it's pretty intense. This is part two. Part one was available today as well. Enjoy. So again, like, how did you end up having two, three infinite breakfasts with him every day? Like, how did you get into his so deep into his inner circle? He's you're sitting next to him on his shows. So what happened was, I did this what I've learned interview with him when he got to a place where he's one of the most famous people on the planet. Uh, this is right around maybe the year two thousand or so. It was a great interview. Uh, really memorable. And uh, that story of Lady Forley and the horse, that's what appeared in the Esquire What I've Learned column. And it wasn't, in, in my view, like I just sent, it was usually when I would send my stories in, they were so crafted. It, it, it's like the way Hitchcock makes movies where Hitchcock didn't want the editor messing with his movie. So he would only shoot exactly what he wanted. And then basically the actors knew, like, you got to nail it this way so that when it went to the editor, they had no choice but to mm -hmm. adhere to Hitchcock's vision. And that's the way I basically tried to handle the What I've Learned columns where I would get all this information and I would assemble them uh, almost cinematically because you can really influence a story by putting one fact at the top and another in the middle and another at the bottom. You can make facts build so that when you get to the end, you go, oh my God. And I wanted to be in control of that process. My God, I just compared myself to Alfred Hitchcock. I was, <laughs> I was going to point that, that out. James, I was oh, going to no. point that out. Now you're getting decided, me in trouble, James. <laughs> I decided not to do it, but I know people are going to think that, so I'm glad you brought it up. But I was going to say immediately, but, but you caught it as well. Um, My apologies okay. to everyone. My apologies. But I, d I just wanted to get across the point that usually I would send these stories in like so close to the actual content that could appear in the magazine that there was not that much to edit. Or if the, the material was so good and I knew I could get a, I, I'd want to see it all. It was just unfortunate we didn't have enough space. I would, I would point out possibilities. But when it came this time, there was so much great content that I just sent like almost everything that appeared in the interview, all the wisdom. Right, let, let the editor figure that, it out. It's too I, much. I, I, yeah, it, it was, it doesn't matter what you do with it. It cannot go wrong. I don't care yeah. how you play this. And for whatever reason, the, the story about the horse race stuck out to the editor and it filled up the, it's a great story. the bulk of that page. It wasn't even my favorite. Like I, I have like... Three other favorite stories, four other stories, five other stories on top of that. But my, my point here is that I send it in and I see in the magazine what they loved and I realize, oh man, I just got all this material. It, it's it really is a shame that I didn't have, I couldn't fill up the magazine with this. Well, that was back in 2000, uh, time passes and, uh, Larry keeps growing. I started to go from magazine writer to book writer. I was writing books in other people's words 
and started to specialize in it. And in 2008, I'm talking to my literary agent. I didn't even realize at the time, but my literary agent was Larry's literary agent. Who's your agent? It's a guy named David Villiano. And so what happens is Villiano says to me, oh, you know what? I, it looks like I'm going to be doing a book with Larry King. And I said, Larry King. I said, I'll write you the proposal tomorrow. I like, I got everything. You just send it in. By the way, important lesson here. Don't wait for opportunity. Don't wait for someone to call you out of the blue. And I'm saying this to myself and the listeners, but I'm noticing, but this, this technique has worked for me and I'm, I'm noticing now it just worked for you. You can't, no one's going to call Cal Fussman out of the blue and say, I want you to write Barack Obama's autobiography. <laughs> you have to pursue things. You have to write the proposal for free to get the job, particularly in such a highly competitive area. We all love the highly competitive areas. That's why we all love them. And, uh, or that's why they're so highly competitive. So you, you took, you saw an opening, but you have to, you have to go for the opening. You can't just wait for people to bless you uh, with, with their magic. I'm when I heard that, and I, I'm so glad you asked me that question because I can almost visualize the moment. You know, it was my lady Forley. <laughs> you know, I'm seeing those horse. Yeah, and it's your miracle. I, that horse is going to win. And I know, like, not, it's not even about the work, James. I know this is going to be a great book. I got all the stories. And he had written books before. Uh, I had read some of them and... Got to be honest, uh, at times they would, were not assembled very well. Uh, was he the writer? Uh, he had ghostwriters, uh, but he had, he had never done like a soup to nuts autobiography. He would do books, uh, some about communication, really good book. Uh, if anyone wants to look for it. It's like how to communicate with anybody anytime. Uh, he did a book uh, about New York, growing up in New York. He did like books that focused on themes in his CNN show. Could be about religion, God, spirit. Could be about love stories. Uh, he, he was doing books all the time. Uh, but I realized, wow, this is a format, this is an avenue that I can go down to reach a platform to assemble everything into a chronological journey that shows how he became who he became and where it all ended up. And so Villiano says, well, let me, let me call him, see what he has to say. And he remembered me. And he said, yeah, that, that's great. Uh, why don't you set up a lunch with Cal? Next time I'm in New York, I'll meet him over at the Regency and let's move it forward. So I go meet him at the Regency and he's all in, very gracious. And, sa and we say, okay, God, I'm, I'm telling the story now, realizing how much he changed my life. Because I'm living in North Carolina at the time. I had moved down to raise my kids near their grandparents, my mom and dad. And I thought, okay, how about we do this, Larry? I'll come out over the summer to LA. I'll get a place for the summer and my kids and my wife can go out. It'll be a nice vacation for them. And we can do all of the research and get all the content for the book. And then in September, I'll go back home to North Carolina and I'll write the book. And if I need any help at that point, we can always talk by phone. He says, great. So I go out and my wife and my kids are, they, you know what? They were in the same place where I met you in Santa Monica. Oh, yeah? You remember the hotel yeah, yeah. on the water next to Casa Del Mar? Yeah, yeah. I um, Gosh, it's it's it's... It's a, a well-known hotel in Santa Monica, but now I forget the name, but yes. And so they're happily camped out by 
the sea. And I'm going to breakfast at Nate and Al's Deli where he sits down with his friends every morning and becoming one of the crowd. Uh, there was just one problem. The contract for the book had not been sent. And Larry said, look, uh, I would prefer that we started on the actual interviewing once all the T's are crossed, the, crossed, the I's are dotted, and our names are on the contract. Is that okay? I said, sure. So I kept just going to breakfast with him. Uh, at times he would invite me to dinner. He would invite me to the CNN show. But we didn't really start to move on the book. And now, like, we're through with May. We're through with June. Where's the contract? Oh, you know how these contracts go. Yeah, but it takes a long time. I, I have no idea why. It's All we needed is like a single piece of paper. But it didn't come until like the end of August. And so now I still, I don't have the first word of this book. Uh, but what I do have is the start of a friendship because now I'm at the breakfast table every day. One of his best friends, Sid Young, was uh, like his protector. And if Sid Young liked you, you were in. If he didn't like you, you're going to have problems. And Sid and I immediately became close. I mean, all these guys were of my father's generation. They grew up not far from where my father grew up in Brooklyn. They like they were could be father figures to me. And so it was really seamless. I, I was, if my dad had lived where they lived, you know, these guys would have been uncles to me. And by the end of the summer, I'm thinking, all right, now what am I going to do? Because I got to somehow get this interviewing done, but it, it's going to be hard to do it if I go back to North Carolina with my family. And that's when I said to my wife, you know, I, I think I'm just going to take an apartment here and I'll spend a couple of months and then I'll come in on weekends and, and and so she's thinking wait a second you're gonna just spend all your time with a guy who's been married seven or eight times <laughs> and i'm gonna be on the other side of the country while you're being influenced by this guy no problem cal you know what that didn't she met him she liked him uh, my kids uh, my youngest daughter uh, bridget would come to breakfast with me every Saturday. And so it started to become like a family. And Larry brought his two youngest kids to breakfast on weekends. They got to know each other. They were shooting spitballs across the table. I mean, you know, my daughter was like six years old at the time. That's what we're talking about there. We're talking about immediately stepping into a very familial place, a familiar and familial place. And September rolls around and my wife does say, and my kids say, you know, we want to live by the beach. <laughs> we don't want to live without dad. We want to be here too. If you're going to stay, we want to stay. And so I said, okay, uh, We'll, we'll all, we'll all move here. And we, we got a place in Santa Monica and I would drive to breakfast every morning and, the, and then the research picked up heavily. And so I was with him almost all the time. Uh, there was a deadline on the book. It became my life. Uh, either I was doing Esquire interviews or doing this book, and I think it must have been in about, the book was done in like six months, which it was kind of sad because if I had had like a year and a half to really do the book and talk with everybody, I, it, it might have been a different book. Uh, but I was able to get out 
the accumulation of his career and all the stories were seamlessly woven in. And you did Larry like the book? Larry loved the book. All his friends loved the book. All the people who people would read this book in a night or two days because it moves so fast. It was literally like sitting down at breakfast with Larry, listening to tell it, him tell his stories and his encounters. It's in his words. That's what I do. I'm just shaping his words so that you felt you were at the breakfast table with us. And a lot of laughter, uh, but also the difficult moments. And then my family was living in L.A., and I'm telling you, it's it's almost hard to imagine. It's hard. This is also 2008. I'm talking September. You know what happened then? September, October, yeah. the whole Great yeah, Recession horrible. comes into being, and I can't even like get a grip on it because I'm so locked in on just getting this book done. It had gotten a nice advance. So it's probably good for you. Like uh, you were kind of detached from, it was really a horror story. Uh, yeah. Well, th that horror story would later revisit me because now I got houses on two coasts and right. basically all work dries up. Uh, but every setback is a step forward. Yeah. And what happened is uh, the success of the first book uh, got a second book and we did a second book and that book actually came out still in the great recession. And it was right. I, I remember, uh, borders books closing right at the time where this, the second book came out and we were going to borders books to like, to look, see where they positioned it or whatever. And it was just closed and you just knew, uh, oh, uh, there's going to be some problems here. Uh, the first book, he went on the air and actually held it up, talked about it. And so it got a great reception. And I, I started to feel at that time that, oh, like, you start to feel the, the magazine world starting to shrivel up. Uh, now it's got to be in a real difficult place because COVID was like a brutal left hook to, to magazines. Uh, but back then, you, in the Great Recession, you could start to see the magazine stands go out of business. Yeah. And No, like even, I mean, a lot of magazines, you, you suddenly would notice thinner and thinner magazines. Because fewer ads. That, that's right. So like the What I've Learned column that I did for Esquire, I used to do one like every month. Uh, occasionally someone else would do one, but basically uh, it was my, what, what, what I actually did, it was, it was kind of a smart move uh, because in the Great Recession, uh, all the budgets started getting slashed. And I was talking to the editor of Esquire and he was telling me, look, there's going to have to be cuts made. And, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll like give up a chunk of my salary to just do these, what I've learned interviews. I'm not going to write anything else. Uh, like every month you'll get a, what I've learned interview with an icon. And then in January, uh, I, the whole issue was these, what I've learned interviews that I would do. And so I sacrificed a chunk of my salary there. I was working for ESPN magazine. And right before this, they had the same jitters in their stomach. And I talked to the editor and the editor said, you know, like, we may have to let some people go. And I said, you know what? Take my salary. I'm going to be fine. Like, give the money to somebody who's up and coming and needs it. And of, of course, thinking... Uh, don't whatever whatever's coming, I'll, I'll be able to surf the wave. And then <laughs> the next thing you know, it's like you know, little Cal out there with a surfboard and a tsunami, the Great Recession coming at him. And but I was next to Larry. I, I was next to Larry King, and 
Every setback is a step forward. And I'm listening to him. Uh, he celebrates his 25th anniversary on CNN. And shortly thereafter, uh, he leaves CNN uh, to start his own internet interview show. Uh, Carlos Slim, the Mexican multi-billionaire, got behind him. Did, did Larry want to do that? Or was he asked to retire? Or It was a time of change. And I think what was happening is cable news ratings were starting to go down. Uh, was, the internet was coming in and picking up a lot of the ears and eyes of people, and they were, they were moving from television to the internet. And so CNN was basically looking at this perhaps with a vision for the future. I think they made a terrible mistake uh, and they chose- Was Larry disappointed at all? I mean, I know my, my guess is he wasn't because of what you have said, but was he surprised or disappointed? It, it was hard for him uh, to leave that show. Uh, you spend 25 years doing it night after night after night. You work with the same people. Uh, you have your routines developed. Uh, and he was a very routine-driven person. I mean, if breakfast was at 8.30, he was there at 8.29. Again, he his background was in the radio. You cannot show up five minutes late. So everything functioned according to time. He was a clockhead. And but, but, but I will, I will say like, I, you know, with his internet show, I thought, okay, that's the end of Larry King. Like I remember when this, this happened, but, uh, he, he brought it to life. He, people tuned in to his internet show. And Oprah Winfrey told him, because remember she started to fan out on cable. Uh, you know, she was right. She left CBS and uh, that's right. Went on her own way. She went on her own way. And all of a sudden it was like, what channels Oprah on? Like everybody knew where she was, but when she went about doing her own thing, all of a sudden, like, where's Oprah? And it became very easy. All you had to do was go to the internet and Google like Larry King internet show and it would come to you. And Oprah actually told him, I wish I had done what you did. Uh, unfortunately, it was the show was not managed well. And it it could have been a lot better, a lot bigger, and it could have been a game changer. Uh, but because it wasn't managed well, it just kind of stayed at its own level as time passed. Uh, in that time, I'm still having breakfast with Larry every day. And also some of the, of his friends who were 75 when I came to the table, like now they're hitting 80. And uh, Sid Young, who I mentioned, who I became very close with, he actually had a stroke at the table at, the, at table. the table, like half of his face froze and he didn't realize it. He was communicating as if he was fine, but it was only coming out of one side of his mouth. And I'm saying, Sid, like, I, I got to take you to the doctor. And Sid's like, what are you crazy? <laughs> like, I'm just going to go home and get some sleep. And I said, Sid, you're not driving home. And he's like screaming at me through half of his face. And finally, I, I got his keys and I drove him over to the doctor and they said, like, oh, it's such a good thing you got him here now. And he- Yeah, strokes are scary in that if you, you, this is the one time in your life you cannot be in denial, like every second counts. Because blood is leaking into your brain and, and you know incapacitating your brain you could be in serious, painful trouble 
like like being locked into your body and frozen and whatever if you if you wait even a second too much. And I was so grateful that I got him to the doctor. He he lived a few years after that, but the the, the stroke set in motion a lot of complications and sure. it left him at home. He couldn't come to the breakfast table. Others at the table started to pass away. And it's almost getting to a point where it's like me and Larry. Uh, and what I started to do, and this is why it's so hard for me to believe that I didn't invite you to the table, because I started to invite like all the cool people that I was meeting to come to breakfast. Honored to be included on that list, even though you, I wasn't you, at, at the breakfast. You were included. I guarantee you I invited you. Many times. You probably did. I, you know, I, I, every time I was in LA, it was always there for a reason. And if I was doing something, I probably just didn't go. But I remember being jealous that, that Steve went and I didn't go. Well, uh, um, when you listen to the podcast, you'll have your seat at the table. Excellent. Let me ask you this. Like, did you, you were so close to him. You were, you were going to all these shows, you were sitting next to him and, and you were meeting all the guests. Did you ever ask anything of him? Like, Hey, Larry, I'd like to do a radio show. Can I, do you know a way I should start? Or did he ever offer like, why don't you fill my sh shoes on this radio show or TV show or whatever, or, or guest host for me or anything like that? It happened very slowly and unexpectedly. Uh, he was given a show on the radio. It was one minute, like Larry King dropping in. And he said, do you want to write the radio, the radio copy for that? And it, it could be about anything. It could be about <laughs> one week. And I, I, it, it comes to mind because after he passed, I was so glad this happened. Uh, my daughter... Bridget, same one who was coming to Larry's breakfast table every Saturday and Sunday. She was like a part of the group. Uh, she was in this choir, and the choir was singing Danny Boy. You know that song? Oh, Danny Boy. Yeah. yeah. The pipes, the pipes are calling. And so I said to her, after hearing the performance, like, Bridget, do you know, again, she's like nine years old, 10 years old, kid. Do you know what that song is about? She's so, yeah, it's about this Irish plumber. There's this big leak in town and the plumber has to go fix the leak. So he's got to leave the kid, Danny. And so the song is about the plumber going to fix the leak. And I tell everybody at the breakfast table, they're cracking up. And so we would do like a minute spot about that. It could just be That's anything great. I love that. that comes up and it makes you laugh. Good concept. And so we're doing this week after week and I'm handing him the copy and I'm noticing how he's not writing anything on it, but he's changing it as he's talking. As a writer, my sentences might have been like longer and somewhat detailed. Yeah, he was turning it into his That's voice. That's right, in front of my eyes. And so now I'm starting to see how it is when you talk on the radio. And then my copy started to be radio copy. Because we're doing this like week after week. And then he, after, after he left CNN, one of the things he always wanted to do was a comedy show. So he did a 90-minute show. It's like a Vegas-like show, something you'd see out at the wind uh, where he would be on stage. It was a one-man show, and they would flash up photos, uh, and he'd tell his stories. And then at the end, there would be a Q&A. And he loved this. And this was, 
I think his dream was to do this on Broadway because he wanted to be a comic. You remember Jackie Mason had that show years yeah. ago. It was, a, it was a big hit. That's what he wanted to do. So I went around with him while he was doing this show. And I'm just watching like again and again and again. And it's almost like I'm breathing in this way of storytelling. And so what happens is I am inviting younger people, like young entrepreneurs over to the table to meet Larry. And one of them is a guy named Elliot Bisnow, who started a, an organization, a group called Summit. And the idea is this was going to be a place where entrepreneurs could come together, learn from each other, uh, hack success, or figure out how to be successful from each other. They ended up buying, Elliot and his partners, buying a mountain in Utah, in Eden, Utah, and building a community for entrepreneurs so that groups could come in and learn from each other and they would bring speakers in and they also did cruises. Uh, every year they'd cruise from Miami to the Bahamas. And so at the table, Elliot says to Larry, wow, like, could you come and speak uh, on our cruise? And of course, Larry always said yes. It was a big problem. I, I, he would say yes to people. And after breakfast, I'd have to pull him aside and say, look, I know he said yes, but it's not, it's probably not going to happen because he's. It's a little like me, unfortunately. Yeah, and he would say yes to four bookings, like in the single, not in on a single weekend night. And then like the day before everybody would call up and Ultimately, he got a wonderful woman named Becky who was in charge of his schedule, but people would come up and ask him, he'd say yes, and it would never get to Becky. And then somebody would have to tell the people who thought they were on the schedule that Larry had another appointment. Oftentimes it was Sid, uh, I would do it. And I knew when Elliot asked Larry, would you like to come speak on a cruise that there was no way that Larry was going to speak on the cruise because Larry had a fear of water. He had nearly <laughs> drowned when he was a kid and he wanted nothing to do with water. So I'm sitting there watching this saying, Elliot, like it's, it's just not going to happen. Like I know he said, yes. And Elliot said, really? I said, I, I promise you it's not going to happen. And Elliot said, well, like, why don't you come and speak? So I said, sure. I, I had never spoken up until that point. And I went down to this cruise. I prepared for it. And in the preparation, like, I can feel that what I just saw on that 90-minute performance that Larry was given, his comedy tour, it was like coming out of me through my own stories. I mean, my stories were Muhammad Ali or Mikhail Gorbachev or Robert De Niro. And it was Larry coming out because I'd never told the stories like that before. And I got up on stage on this cruise ship and it was the evening. And I thought like, this ship is set up. There are 4,000 entrepreneurs aboard. There are speakers all over the ship. You go see what you want. Hardly anybody knows about me at that point. Unless you read Esquire magazine, I was pretty well off the radar and I never tried to promote myself. And so I'm thinking, ah, you know what? Like 17 people may show up to this. And then at the last minute, they moved me from one room to another and I'm thinking, okay, like four people are going to show up. What I didn't understand is they had marketed this perfectly. Uh, and it was more like decoding the art of the interview with Donald Trump, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Robert De Niro. That was the title. 
that everybody was seeing in the handbook for the event. And so I arrive and there are people filling every seat. I thought there were going to be like a few people. And I actually had this idea that I'm going to get a few sommeliers to give wine out during my talk. So it would be kind of chummy. We'd all be drinking a glass of wine. And I arrive, every seat's packed. There are billionaires sitting in the aisles, legs crossed, because they didn't arrive in time to get a seat. And everybody is packed to the back of the room. And I look up and I said, holy shit. I've never spoken before. I am like Larry on his first day on the air. Only everybody's going to be looking at me. <laughs> and I just remembered, you know, Larry telling that story. And it would, after he tells that story about nothing coming out, he always used to say, whenever he told that story to people like Jackie Gleason or anyone, Arthur Godfrey, who had been on radio for years, they would say to him, you discovered the secret of success on your first day on the air. And that is, there is no secret. Just be yourself. So that's in my head. I got a glass of wine in my hand. They've run out of wine. People, <laughs> where's my wine? And I just got up and I just started telling stories. Just like Larry told stories for that hour and a half. And I went about an hour and 15 minutes. And when I'm done, is a standing ovation. That's and great. this monk in monk garb, there's a long line of people to see me. And the one guy who stood out was this monk, shaved head. And he's... Oh, what's his name? I, I think I know him. I think I've seen him at conferences. Dan Dapani. Yeah, yeah, I know. Great guy. Great guy. Yeah, yeah. And he... It comes to a place where I'm working down the line of shaking everyone's hands. And Dan Dupani says to me, how long have you been speaking? I said, well, this is my first day. And he said, what? He said, you got to be doing this for, I don't know what else you do, but this is what you should be doing for a living. And I said, really? He said, I go to conferences. I speak. I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. Any way I can help you, you let me know. I'll open doors. I'll introduce you to people. I am telling you, this is who you are, and you've got to do it. And so at that moment, I became a speaker. And, That's and great. at that time, at that precisely that moment, our, it was getting to that point where the editor of Esquire, David Granger, who I'd worked with from the first day, that he arrived, uh, he reached about 20 years. I was there for 20 years and he left Esquire at that point. And so I moved on as well, straight into speaking. And now I am working with my voice and Larry King is in the audience watching me. And he would, this tells you something. He was so proud because he would always come up and just like put his arm around me and said, like, can you believe this guy? Like he came to the table, he barely said a word. Now look at him. And it, that's great. And it was very much a sort of father son like relationship that way. Under the rubric of Every setback is a step forward. Okay. Let me ask you this. If you, you know, so sadly, January 23rd, day after my birthday, actually, January 23rd of this year, um, Larry King passed away from compl complications due to COVID. Uh, you know, as you mentioned to me in, a, in an earlier conversation, um, it was, it, I, I guess, because of the COVID aspect. He was by himself. He couldn't have family and, and friends with him. I'm sure that was very sad, but I'm sure he was probably knocked out and whatever. But um, 
I mean, it's cliche to ask you what was your first reaction when you heard about it. I'm sure you were sad, so I'm not going to ask that. But I want to ask you if you had, if if, and this is a, this is also kind of a cliche sort of question, but I feel so much emotion in your in your story and in the times you spent with him and your descriptions of it. If you could tell, if Larry King could come back for 30 seconds, 30 to 60 seconds right now, and you could tell him one thing that you wish you had told him, what what would it be? Well, I actually got to do that in real life because well, what happened is uh, his health started failing and it really started getting really difficult in April of 19. And I, there were just so many medical problems. I mean, we're, we're talking like lung cancer, leukemia. He went into the hospital, got sepsis twice, uh, problems with his bladder, prostate cancer, heart problem, heart failure. I mean, it, there were doctors who looked at his charts and told him, Larry, according to these charts, you should be dead. And I would go see him as much as I possibly could because by this point, uh, I'm now out on the road as a speaker. Sure. And like I'm in Germany, I'm in Singapore, and I can't come to breakfast every day. But I had recruited uh, a core of people so that when I wasn't there, there was that group for him to join every morning so he could follow that routine. But when he went into the hospital in April of 19, I, I, I could tell, I mean, there were times through the next year that I would go visit him and wonder, is this the last time I'm gonna see him? Uh, and so I knew what he was up against, but he just kept, coming back. And once on stage, I had asked him what he's most proud of. And he said, it was every time I went down, I got back up. Mm, I love that. And his son started to take care of him. His, uh, his son, Chance, who is about 20 years old, going to USC, and really started to be with him all the time and step up like at the hospital, slept with him at the hospital. And ultimately what happened when COVID hit is Larry's at home, I'm at home. I, now I'm frightened like if I go over and visit if I have COVID and I pass it on to him, I'll never be happy with myself again. And so we, we talked on the phone. I went over there occasionally, kept at a distance. Sometimes we watched sporting events, but I really, I, I was forced to social distance and I, once COVID hit, I, I really did not go anywhere. I, I, I just, for the first time in my life, I just said, you know, I can take no risks. If I get this disease, then, you know, I've, I've got, you know, my kids and my wife, they're depending on me. So I, I just stayed at home and tried to ride it out. And I noticed Larry's son, Chance, taking care of Larry. And now my dad is about to turn 90. And he's at home in North Carolina alone. And I'm, I'm watching Chance and I'm thinking, you know, I should be with my dad. Mm. And so in August, uh, and by that time, all three of my kids had sort of gone out into different areas, uh, youngest was just going off to school at NYU. And I, all, all the breakfasts were over because the breakfast places weren't open. There was no more breakfast. Uh, I would call Larry and 
I would get videos of Larry trying to walk out. He had a stroke, and when he had the stroke, he lost the ability to walk. And he really fought against it, fought against it, fought against it. And he, he actually, I, I have a video of him where he's on a walker and he's just kept at it till he could walk. Uh, but there would always be a fall. You know how it is. You get to be 86, 87. And I, like I knew what ultimately was going to happen and I decided to make the decision to be with my dad in North Carolina. So my wife and I packed up, we moved across the country. And I, I talked with Larry, the conversations were short at that point. Obviously he was in a lot of pain and times, there were times when I called and he didn't call back. I, and and then two of his older children passed away within a month. And I I thought, oh man, this this is just too much. I mean one uh, I think Andy was in his sixties and Kaya maybe her late fifties. And so he's like watching a funeral on Zoom. Uh, it had to be so terrible. And I went to see him right before I drove across the country with my dog from California to North Carolina. And in answer to your question, I had that moment and we just looked at each other and we both said, I love you. And that was the last words we said to each other while we were eye to eye. And I could tell as time was passing that things were getting rougher and rougher. And we talked occasionally. And I think what happened is right after we said, I love you, in some way, when I walked out the door, I knew I would never see him again in the same room and and so this is a hard thing to say but in a way the the dealing with the death the grief started then and when he ultimately died uh, I had been grieving for seven months already. So I wasn't grabbed by the lapels as somebody I know who just lost their dad, who was in the picture of health, and then they went to the doctor, and all of a sudden they were dead. And like you get a phone call. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Zorba the Greek. Mm-mm. Uh, it, it's... The star was a guy named Anthony Quinn, Academy Award winner. If you ever get a chance, it's a black and white film. I think sure. back in the fifties. Black and white films. And it it may seem slow moving at times because it it was filmed at a slower time. But if you're watching it back in that day, it actually moved pretty quick. And Zorba is this life loving figure like dancing and doing all these crazy things, running around with women. And then a woman who he had had a relationship with dies. And as soon as she dies, he stops grieving. It's like while he's with her in the last moments, he's hugging her. He's throwing his passion, but the moment she dies, he walks out the door and it's like, that was yesterday, this is now. And he just starts going to a place where he can dance again. And I've always tried to treat death like Zorba the Greek, uh, rather than wallow in it, 
I, I try to anticipate it and grieve ahead of time so that my grief is just is getting to a point where I can handle it and start to walk away. And that's pretty much the way I felt when Larry passed, although I, he'd always say to me, make sure my obituary is a good one, which is why I've been selling it so hard on this podcast for everyone to listen to because I did his obituary, only not in the printed word, but through a microphone, just like he taught me. And I scripted it all out. That's great. And I wove in the stories that he told me that I taped. And I did it in a way to keep him alive so that anybody who listens to it will feel like you're at the breakfast table. Well, Cal, this has been an amazing journey with you because I didn't really know much about him, to be honest. And I'm so glad you've told these stories. I'm going to listen to Remembering the King on the Big Questions podcast. And uh, it's a really, really beautiful relationship you had with him. And I, I hope you start doing breakfast every day with a, a group of your friends, and I will go to that table. Well, you know what, James? I, I've been thinking about that. It's on my mind, and I think when all this COVID ends, it's something that I'm going to try to put into my life again because it's a beautiful thing to get up in the morning and have some of the people you see every day there. Uh, and other times there were people who showed up on Tuesdays and Thursdays, people showed up on Saturdays. Uh, that you were connected to. And then I was always bringing in new people so that it was really a lively place to be. And there were, in, in that case, there were people who were just in awe that they got to spend breakfast sure. with Larry. And then afterwards, it, it, it almost got to be like a thing because afterwards he posed for a picture. <laughs> I would I would like shoot the shot and text it or email to them. I have like more pictures of people like with Larry and Larry having their his hand around their shoulders in my cell phone than I do of Larry and me. Uh, because it it was so great for these people to have that memory of the experience. And I, I'm really grateful to you for allowing me to talk about it because it really, it makes me happy to celebrate his life. And I'll just leave you with that same sentence. Every setback is a step forward. If you look at life that way, if you look, his life was a perfect example. Every time he got knocked down, he came back to a bigger place. 